This episode is brought to you by Sideshow Entertainment. For years, parents have attempted to inject lessons about the adult world into their children's birthday parties, like hiding a large, bad-tasting pill in a peanut butter sandwich. The go-to old-fashioned method has been to invite a scary clown to come and make phallic sculptures from balloons and get drunk behind the neighbor's hedges. Well, Sideshow Entertainment has brought a modern spin to that tired education process. Their experts in elementary pedagogy show up at your 8-year-old's party with a virtual pageant of ambassadors from life's grand heterogeneity. They'll teach little Alcibiades and Hypatia the remarkable diversity of human genetics with examples of relatively tall and relatively diminutive married couples. They will reassure your little romanticist that they can eventually find someone to love them, however unlikely that appears at the moment. And they'll also be presented with amazing interspecies cross-sections like the horse-bodied man, the dog-faced ape, and the duck-bottom girl. And the 150-year-old man, give or take, closes this thrilling fanfare with a discourse on the ravages of time against the body. And now, when our listeners order a full parade of human exceptionalisms they can get at no extra charge, Sideshow Entertainment's Tattooed Lady. Almost entirely naked and covered in scenes from Georgian-era novels, she'll get little Darwin started on a lifelong enthusiasm for late 18th century literature. Just use the promo code REREAD, one word. And thank you, Sideshow Entertainment, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's the Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hello, Wolfins! Now, please do not adjust your podcast device. We are only one week since the last episode, and there's been no time slippage. You haven't fallen into a mirror or wandered into a time corridor. The last episode came about a week <laughs> late, and we just decided, eh, we'll get back on track. We're matching my lethargy with my industriousness to <laughs> average out to neutrality. The same. <laughs> well, okay, well, let's get to it. We made a lot of the symmetry of this book last episode the, mm -hmm. the parallels between the way it begins and ends and i can't remember if we talked about the parallels between the beginning of claw and the beginning of shadow but yep it is there we suggested a few different things yeah because they're they're extracting a body here they're extracting a body there they're a voltolari there voltolari here no one is getting saved like severians save Vodalus. well you know not right here but we're going to find out that there is help on the way for Barnack. Yep. Anyway, Michael Andre Drisi on Reddit was ready to go with perspectives on all that. He suggested that Agia plays the role of Thea in this scene, if you compare it to the beginning of Shadow. Does that mean that Severian is the alternate Vodalus with a sword? Or maybe Barnock is the criminal and the Alcalde is the badger? Yeah, you could set those parallels up in a bunch of different ways, yeah. Yeah. As we noted, there is a badger in this scene, just like there was at the beginning of Shadow, Hildegrin, and just as Hildegrin is at the end of Claw, but who, who, Craig, is the badger at the beginning of Claw? 
The, the innkeeper says they'll have him, quote, out like a badger. And of course, when you're hunting badgers, you drag them out of their burrows. So in that reading, Barnock is the badger. Alternately, the reading could be more direct. They could be going to extract Barnock like Hildegrin the badger, extracting a corpse. And either way, we've got volunteers standing by. But Michael pointed out something really interesting, that this tableau, three figures resurrecting a body, is repeated over and over at the beginning of Shadow, at the beginning of Claw, at the end of Claw, but also in the middle of Shadow when Severian, Agia, Hildegrin resurrect Dorcas. Wow. True. Michael suggested that we should start naming these repeated tableaus to keep track of them. He called this one Hour of the Badger. Well, uh, Craig, you know all too well, unfortunately, I am obsessed with these tableaus, and I think they are associated. <laughs> it's not the only reason they're associated, but I believe they are associated with Hamlet's mill superstructure of this story. And when we get to the Cavern of the Eight Men, we're going to get to an additional tableau that I think extends well beyond the Book of the New Sunday. And I'll have to think of a name for it then. But either way, we can all agree that these tableaus exist. Definitely. And also want to give a shout out to Michael for in what he emailed us and was like, are you guys all right? <laughs> it's been a couple, it's been more than two weeks. So <laughs> thanks to Michael for actually remembering like when we normally release stuff and checking in on us. That was, that's, that's right. Cool. Uh, he was calling all the hospitals and police stations. It was, <laughs> it was touching. Michael also got into a discussion about the pronunciation of Agia's name. We've never settled on some sort of a canon for that. You do your thing, I do mine. Um, he had all kinds of different ways that people pronounce it uh, or could pronounce it. And one of the thing he left out was Ahia, as in the Greek source of the name, for such as in uh, Ahia Sophia, right? Because her name literally means saint. But in a world where people are all named after saints, someone being named saint, well, I don't know, Craig, it, it must mean something. It makes me think either Jane Doe or Exactly, <laughs> or yeah. Something like yeah. That. yeah, maybe she showed up and said, well, I'm going to pick the most ordinary name around here. Uh, how about saint? <laughs> That's a good one, though. That's a good catch. Uh, speaking of badgers, uh, Sean Michael Robinson sees a potential connection between this phrase and the possibility that the innkeeper is a spy. When the innkeeper says, we'll have Barnock out like a badger, this could be an attempt to signal to Severian that the innkeeper is working for Hildegrin. You know, Craig, I really do like this one. I, I like it. I like it. It could also just be highlighting something about mm -hmm. the the badger moment to highlight symmetry again hard to say from that but i do like the idea that yeah maybe he's more than he seems yeah because we yeah. talked about how he seems so dull in certain ways compared yeah. to other wolf characters so any way that we can find some sort of secret role for him to play that's really cool <laughs> yeah it's subtle but I, I find it appealing and sean theorizes further that the innkeeper is could be the one that alerted Vodalus to where severian was to be found. And 
Finally, Sean also theorizes that the blue light in the dream is the claw activating in Severian's sleep and influencing the dream, like the sound of an alarm clock, or when you fall asleep in church and your mom in the dream is talking to you about the Philistines. And, you know, he offered that <laughs> perhaps this is when the wine was transformed. But, well, that cannot be. The wine was already transformed the night before. But yeah, of course, it could still have been active while Severian was dreaming. Definitely. Yeah, I like that call out too, because it's definitely setting us up for the light in the when we actually get to the cave. Mm -hmm. And who knows? Yeah, that it could be a literal thing going on too. Yeah. And Severian's just interpreting it through his dream state at the same right. time. Yeah. On the Facebook page, Charles Gillingham offered an additional word of association for the name of the town of Saltus. Saltus Lune. It means leap moon. Uh, rather than meaning like a narrow valley, in this sense, the word saltus means leap. And he notes that the concept is associated with Easter, and it is. Every 19 years, the lunar cycle of months gets back into sync with the solar cycle, almost. It's super complicated, at least to me. But the point is that the series of calendar adjustments are necessary to get the lunar and solar cycles back in sync. It is called a computus. And it all starts on Easter of the last year. Incidentally, I knew the term a movable feast, but in investigating this, I learned the original real meaning of the term. Easter is called a movable feast because it occurs on a different date each year within a 35-day period. And anyway, Charles proffers that perhaps Barnock is being extracted on Easter because, you know, it's a resurrection. And... So if St. Catherine's feast day is on the same day it is for us in November, then he theorizes that would mean Severian and Jonas were traveling together for a long time, three or four months. Mm. What do you think? That's the only part that I don't necessarily like about it, because otherwise mm. I think it'd be great if you could fit the saltus and the jump and the leap and mm -hmm. the, the calendar. and That'd be great. It just doesn't fit the, the timeline exactly. But still, nonetheless, the idea... I like that the suggestions for all that are there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Good on you, Charles. But a matter of months is just too long for Severian and Jonas to have been together, in my opinion. Also, I learned a lot investigating this association. So thanks for that. Austin Beeman started an interesting discussion on in what way Jonas's face might be different from Severian's perspective. He suggests that perhaps it could be a way of describing an Asian face. And I guess since Jonas might have been traveling with someone named Kim Lee Soong, Austin thinks it's possible that Jonas looks Asian too. Sean Michael Robeson counter-theorized that Severian was referring to Jonas's uncanny facial symmetry because, you know, he's a robot. I don't know. When we get to chapter seven or so, Jonas is going to have a discussion with Severian about how long it's been since the people in those old pictures and the people in the mines, the man apes, that and that Severian's people have themselves changed. I admit I'm more inclined to that, but since there's so much I don't understand about Jonas, well, it's hard to say anything emphatically. Yeah, and it's also a bit of a frustrating conversation too, where yeah. Jonas starts to clarify a whole bunch of things and then doesn't quite pay off. Oh, that's such Very a wolfing wolfing. Carrier. Yeah, a character to do. 
It, it, but it's all something to keep an eye on, right? Marcus Govea is double downing on my reading of the word Erentari as a typo by Wolf. The word he was looking for was Ferentari with an F. And he's as mystified as we are about how Wolf ended up dropping the F. He has some interesting links to some source material. Some suggestions that the Ferentari carried blades in their belts. Uh, I'll link to his Facebook post in the show notes. But he has some additional information about the Ferentari. Varro Riatinus said that the weapons that they carried were thrown. And that works with Wolf's Erentari, as they were um, slingers, right? And if Wolf did that much research into the Ferentari, it's even more surprising that he would have had this misspelling. So, now also, last chapter, I was a little thrown by the term slot man. I took it to mean something like a ragman. Well, Mike Lejeune showed up on the Facebook uh, page with an answer. He says, slops, as readers of naval fiction know, are articles of clothing or bedding or cloth to make such. Issued to sailors on a ship, googling around, it seems that some other alternatives are 16th century short trousers, a loose outer garment like a smock or overall, or cheap ready-made garments. And this would be, you know, of course, a term that Gene Wolfe, a nautical nerd, would be quite familiar with. And so the slot mm -hmm. man, you know, he's a guy selling, I don't know, secondhand clothes, loose-fitting clothes. But here's Severian dressed, at least by illusion, in naval uniforms, standing next to a sailor. It's all quite, again, Wolfian. Weird. Not how I picture Severia. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to always think of him in the ferret standing around in a sailor suit. That'll be good. <laughs> Finnegan Matthews sees a connection between Barnock's ghost-like appearance and the glowing bodies of the man-apes in Chapter 6. He says, Severian mistakes Barnock for a glowing ghost and the apes for distant stars at first. And for the man-apes, the only part of the bodies that weren't glowing were their eyes. And for Barnack, Severian describes them as dark as the black abscess of his mouth. There's the, quote, repeated reference to decaying wood. And it makes Finnegan think, quote, that there might be some kind of bioluminescent fungus in the area around Saltus that grows on people if they stay out of the light long enough. And he sees an echo of the way the green man talks about his people feeding off algae in their bloodstream. Maybe there's something similar happening with this bioluminescent stuff that allows Mother Pyrexia and Barnox to survive in the dark for extended periods without nourishment. Of course, you know, Craig, we're going to talk about that scene. And I, I got to admit, I don't know about the bioluminescence is suggesting there's something about this area. I suppose it could be. I just don't... I, especially when they we read some other sections, we'll have to see if that pops up or not. What I absolutely like, though, is the idea that Barnock does have some kind of glow about him of some sort. Uh, and I hadn't really made that connection with the man apes. And so now I'm curious if that's supposed to be more of a symbolic or mm. kind of spiritual talk, or if that's really supposed to be some kind of connection that we're making. Cause I, I don't know if it is, I don't know what to do with it. Um, he's got some suggestive ideas there. Yeah. I really liked his connection of the, of Barnock and mother Pyrexia to the green man. 
He says, I think the glowing subterranean creatures found around Saltus represent one of the possible future paths humanity can go down, a sort of dark mirror of the green man. If it's true, as the Alcalde says, that a woman sealed in the dark long enough can become something very strange, just like the strange things you find in rotten wood back among the big trees, maybe fusion with the glowing fungi represents the fate of human beings in a world where the new sun never comes. Plants photosynthesize, whereas fungi feed on dead matter, kind of the, like corpse-eating followers of Vodalus, who also live back among the big trees. So he's saying the man-apes living in the mine are an alternate future of humanity, living in darkness without the coming of the new sun, the other side of the coin to the green man. As Severian said, May it not be that mankind will return as an old man does to the decayed image of what once was if at last the old sun dies and we are left scuffling over bones in the dark. He knows how the man-apes generating corpse light worshipped the radiant azure of the claw versus Mother Pyrexia's hatred of the firelight. Yeah, that supposition is well put together, I gotta say. I don't I don't know if it's true, mm-hmm. but I really do like the sort of the parallels that he puts yeah. out there. Yeah. And definitely the idea of man apes living away from the sun, that is kind of a dark alternate option of severity. Yeah. He doesn't bring the new sun. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. Now Severian is going to run around the fair looking for Agia, not finding her, get into a religious discussion with the manager of a tea shop. And then he'll get into a discussion of post-history with the green man. And as you know, green men know everything, if you can get them to talk. And we're the opposite, see? We know nothing, and you can't shut us up. Even when we admit we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we don't care. <laughs> so hit that transition music. Chapter 3. The Showman's Tent. Here we are. Same day since this volume started. I think this is the day after the end of Shadow of the Torturer, maybe a couple days, but I don't see how it could be any longer. They've been to watch Barnock being disinterred from his house. Severian is supposed to execute him tomorrow. Remember, there is a fair going on around the double execution that Severian is performing. And at one of the stalls, Severian has bought colorful clothes for himself. But as Severian surveyed the crowd, he sees Agia. Oh no. (laughs) And as soon as he looks at her and Severian says the instant was frozen, like they were in a painting. And then suddenly she's gone. Meanwhile, Barnock is pulled out screaming at the sun. I suppose that's a reference to the ideology of the Vaudelaire. Severian is quote gasping and sweating, shouting questions to strangers and barely sticking around for the answer. He questions a miner who had been standing beside Agia, but he didn't notice her. So he just follows the crowd, carrying Barnack away. He doesn't see her there or anywhere in the fair. He asks, quote, the farm wives who had come to sell their fragrant cardamom bread and of the hot meat vendors. This, by the way, actually made me go look up recipes for cardamom bread (laughs) because (laughs) Amberly loves cardamom and I'm, yeah, I like it too. So there are some actually, some pretty good looking ones. Yeah. Well, cardamom bread is, as you know, Craig, 
um, a spice from India. Mm-hmm. And obviously a hot meat vendor are the guys selling turkey legs and such. Uh, we'll get a tip here that Severian is writing this book with a quill, of course, but also with red ink, maybe reddish orange, because that's what vermilion is. He calls it vermilion ink of the house absolute. Is he saying that he got the ink at the house absolute, or is he saying that the official ink of house absolute is vermilion? We get a brief description of Agia, quote, wide, flat, cheeks and softly rounded chin, freckled, sun-brown skin, long, laughing, mocking eyes, and then later a mention of her chestnut hair. Severian doesn't know what Agia's game is in being there, and his glimpse of her had awakened the anguish of my memory of her scream. What strikes me about this, though, is that he remembers her scream, but he still has her eyes as mocking. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, really gets to the heart of Agia that even though she's suffering now, those mocking eyes are back. Like I would have <laughs> thought that after she's just in, you know, pain for having missed Agilis, but she has still switched over to revenge Agia pretty yeah. quickly. And it's those mocking eyes that seem to me to do that. Because certainly she was all playful with him back before, and that's how he remembers her. But for him to mention that now is pretty significant i think because at this point in the story we only think of her as you know the degraded creature that she was in the Mm -hmm. cell and then the scream um but for him to bring up that detail now is pretty it's a cool way for wolf to kind of signal even if you're not going to notice it perfectly consciously that she's got some strength in her lap yeah right yeah yeah he runs around saying have you seen a woman so tall with chestnut hair i repeated it again and again like the duelist who had called out Cadro of the 17 stones until the phrase was as meaningless as the song of the cicada. So he's searching for Agia and he thinks of the duelist who was calling out Cadro of the 17 stones. And I think this is a hint from Wolf that it's something we both agree that the duelist calling out at that point was Agalus. And so I still think so. I still like that. Yeah. Yeah. So Severian goes around asking, have you seen a woman so tall with chestnut hair? And yes, every country maid who comes here. Okay, Craig. Now I've been arguing that Agia is Asian, but now I'm not so sure. In fact, I really kind of doubt it now. Is it possible that her flat cheeks and long eyes identify her as a native South American, say like, you know, one of the Amazonian tribes. Yeah. It, it's hard to know. Cause we do know that later on, like, especially in sort of the lictor, he starts talking about the autochthons a lot who mm-hmm. live here. And I, I've always assumed, and I don't, I don't know if this is right, but I've assumed that that kind of distinction that he's making between the autochthons who are seem to be more like the native people of this mm-hmm. land, as opposed to the Commonwealth people who are maybe, you know, ex- who knows, extraplanetary or, you know, more like the exultant, some, some bigger race. But if we're just setting this in South America, then obviously the thing that I think is going to pop into your head is like autochthons are native. And then everybody else would be the Europeans who come over. Right. Um, but there's no reason that, yeah, autochthon blood, as it yeah. were, 
couldn't have made it into Nessus as well, of course. Yeah. In fact, I'm be certain it has at this point. Well, here's the deal. If she looks like every country girl north of Nessus, you know, yeah. Zarian doesn't try to describe her in a way to distinguish her from the rest of the country girls or, or right. girls in Nessus. So there are a lot of things that she knows that makes it seem she's familiar with the North country. And that would also explain why she's always barefoot because that's the way they live in her equatorial village. Could be. And plus too, the way that he's describing her, it seems like if she did have some kind of feature that really set her apart from most of the people in Commonwealth. Yeah. He he would, he would just say that, right. You know, it'd be like, you know, someone with an odd, unusual feature or something, but he doesn't, he's just asking you, have you seen a girl this high with, with hair like this? Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, he doesn't describe her eyes or anything. Yeah. Yeah. That as you doesn't, maybe she's not quite so different, exotic looking. Right. And and shortly after I began to come around to this, we got an email from listener, Tom Ryan, arguing just this point that my frequent assertions that Agia was some kind of Asian descent was misguided. He said, I believe that Agia is indigenous South American. I infer this from the continual reference to her and gold. And he puts in parentheses, golden bow. And he doesn't see her face shape as being particularly Asian and her hair color, which is like every country made. Multiple mentions of her bare feet and her use of the Jurupari, which would link her to perhaps tribes in the North. Yeah. So Tom is arguing, as Lee Berman did, that the figure Agia drew was in fact a Jurupari, not something else. And I suppose her use of it both as a hint to her background or perhaps some kind of religious belief. And this explanation would close off one theory and open up another. The theory that I offered about Aglis being Kim Lee Suong or having some sort of connection to him, that's dead. She's from so far north that people walk around barefoot. Say if she's an autochthon, it just opens the possibility that she's an Asian ally or spy it doesn't resolve anything about Agilis, but if she's grown up in the North, it would complicate her claim that their mother left the rag shop to them. Yeah. People give Severian a lot of other unhelpful responses. And finally, he talks to an old woman, gray hair. Don't worry, you'll find her again. The fair is not big enough for anybody to stay lost long. Didn't the two of you arrange a place to meet? Have some of my tea. You look so tired. She offers to give him tea from her shop for free, but he insists on paying and she takes it. So she serves him mate tea in an earthenware cup, spicy and a little bitter and a straw made of some kind of dimly silver metal. Severian won't take the straw though. She assures him that it's clean. She rinses everything between customers, but uh, Severian's not used to them. Whenever he says dim metal here, I think of pewter just because of all the pewter stuff you see out mm. of like Renfairs. Oh, yeah. like I don't know, <laughs> but just it's not really a joke about Renfairs, but it just seems to fit. I, I wonder if it's a joke, though, that she rinses everything between customers. That right. would not right. satisfy my wife. So, <laughs> oh, this is this is just not following the right restrictions <laughs> here. At least Severian wears a mask. My goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's doing his part. That's true. She recommends that he look for Agia at the 
cattle stalls where the judging is going on. Uh, Craig, you're from North Texas, so I'm sure you've been to the Texas State Fair. And mm-hmm. Wolf would be familiar with that one in the State Fair of Illinois. It's, you know, it's a big deal at any American state with a significant farming industry. Mm-hmm. If you've read Charlotte's Web, then you know what it's like. The point is that this fair is more like that than you know, merely an ad hoc carnival or something. Right. Severian isn't actually sure Agia saw him. He doesn't think she'd recognize him if she did because he's, quote, unusually dressed. The old woman thinks that she wouldn't expect him to dress in his usual clothes at the Saltus Fair. Everyone's going to wear their best. That's still not how Severian is dressed. We also find out that Morwenna chained up at the water is a spectacle at the fair as well. I don't know if they charge a nickel to look at her or something. Yeah, and, it seemed particularly cruel, but yeah, I, I get it. It seems yeah. also seems like a, a very normal kind of thing for this country to do. Yeah, it sounds like something the uh, Alcalde would definitely do. And then we get a massive straight up information dump in a wolf novel. The old woman says, You'll find her yet, though they do say all manner of strange things have been happening round and about a late. They caught a green man, you know that? Got him right over there where you see the tent. Green men know everything, people say, if you can but make them talk. Then there's the cathedral. Suppose you heard about that. I've heard tell it wasn't what city folk call a real one. I know you're from the city by the way you drink your tea, but it's the only cathedral most of us around Saltus ever saw. And pretty, too, with all the hanging lamps and the windows and the sides made of colored silk. Myself, I don't believe. Or rather, I think that if the pen creator don't care nothing for me, I won't care nothing for him. And why should I? Still, it's a shame what they did, if they did what's told against them. Set fire to it, you know. Are you talking about the Cathedral of the Pellerines? The old woman nodded sagely. There, you said it yourself. You're making the same mistake they did. It wasn't the Cathedral of the Pellerines. It was the Cathedral of the Claw. Which is to say, it wasn't theirs to burn. So Severian thinks about it and realizes that they set fire to the straw floor, the straw floor that was on fire after Severian and Agia crashed into the cathedral. So we're putting all this together 19 chapters later after the events in chapter 19, all to explain what happened in 11 chapters ago in chapter 32. That that is the, the vision And then we have to make the cognitive leap that they did not burn down the Cathedral of the Claw out of a sense of sacrilege, as this woman believes, but because the Claw was no longer there. They waited 48 hours for it to return, and then they set fire as soon as the sun went down. And she explains, they just stood back and watched it burn. It went up to the infinite meadows of the new sun. That's an awesome metaphor. I really like this speculation, though. I mean, we never know for sure, but it also gives just a little bit of insight into the religion and how other people deal with the religion. Like she like she mentions believing or not, as if that's a kind of common distinction that people make. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does kind of suggest that there is one primary religion. Like we had talked before about the way that it seems like Severian talks about the different guilds and the different patrons and all of that, that it wasn't quite so sure if there was like one single religion, but the way she's talking about it here makes it seem like there more is maybe Mm -hmm. one 
major belief and that the claw may be the center of that and not just one legend among many, which is honestly how I had usually thought of it before that there were so much history and so many different things that the claw really was just one legend among all kinds of different legends going on. But this makes it seem like maybe that is more of the central, I don't know, a central story that's going on, but also then the idea that, yeah, they set fire to it because they'd lost the claw. And so without the claw, there's no temple that it's not, they're not the, the Pelerines aren't the important thing. The order isn't the important thing. It's, it's what they're there for, which shows a pretty high level of devotion. You know, right. Or something <laughs> or whatever, at least symbolic of what's going on. But also the, the idea of the things that she honors, she doesn't believe she says she's agnostic and mm. yet she has a great deal of a sense of, I don't know, awe or honor toward the cathedral of the claw yeah. itself and thinks that the Pellerines were sacrilegious to have burned it. Yeah. Well, it wasn't hers, but when then you have to think, well, right. whose was it? Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of cool. It's also a fun wolf moment where you learn about, like you said, it's kind of an, a bit of an info dump here, but it's also done in a way that's like there are multiple possibilities of what it could signify. You know, mm -hmm. it's like even in her little speech, she's she's given a couple different ideas about what could be going on. And that's just kind of, as far as world building goes, it's cool. It's not like we're going to quickly read the Wikipedia article. Instead, it's sort of somebody right. speculating about somebody else's motives. And yeah. Just, right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much in there. And we get a little foreshadowing because on the opposite side of the alleyway, a man begins to pound a drum. And then we get the conversation that, well, it's one of the most well-remarked on passages in this whole volume. And that's saying something, given that Zavarian's going to have a conversation with a time-traveling photosynthetic man in the same chapter. And Zavarian says, I know that certain persons have claimed to have seen the cathedral rise in the air. And she says, Oh, it rose all right. When my grandson-in-law heard about it, he was fairly struck flat for half a day. Then he pasted up a kind of hat out of paper and held it over my stove, and it went up. And then he thought it was nothing that the cathedral rose, no miracle at all. That shows what it is to be a fool. It never came to him that the reason things were made so was so the cathedral would rise just like it did. He can't see the hand in nature. As you know, Craig, I see this little conversation as Wolf considering the relation of the stars and human mythology and the increase message to humanity. You know, as Hamlet's Mill asserts, myth is a method of describing the movements of the heavens above people and those stars were made by God. And so it should not surprise anyone that those myths should reveal a true message to mankind from their creator. And this is something argued by G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. As the psalm said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the stars manifest his craftsmanship. But she's also, here's another point. This is her religious opinion of a woman who, I guess, claims to be agnostic or at least maybe not involved in organized religion. Yeah. But, but regarding this, the Severian says uh, he didn't see it rise himself, the cathedral, I mean. And she failed to understand, oh, he's seen it when they've been through here at least a dozen times. So Severian doesn't say what he actually meant. 
We only know that he didn't mean, did your grandson-in-law ever go to see the cathedral when the Pellerines came through? And I think he meant, did he actually see the cathedral rise? Because if he had, he would have understood it was a far more meaningful apparition than that burning bag. That's my reading, right? Yeah, I think so. And I just like the general idea too here that if we're going back to the conversation with Dorcas about reading the meanings of things, this ties right back into that, that there are three, you know, or where we talked about four, but, but different ways to look at something, the sort of physical cause, the maybe more worldly cause, and then the, the higher spiritual meaning for something. And this, this guy is saying just that, that, you know, maybe all of the mechanical reasons for things were done just so that they would bring about spiritual meaning. Right. And uh, it's pretty cool. It's a, it's, and it's sort of fun here that you have, have a quote unquote sort of rustic person mm-hmm. who's sort of saying, Oh no, you know, my, my silly grandson thought he figured it out. It's sort how of like how worked. the magic trick works. But what he never thought about was why do you live in a world in which that magic trick could work that way? Right. Right. It's just, or, or it's just an illusionist contraption. And then you say, well, wait a minute, who built the illusion would be another right. way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And this comes back. I mean, this this is actually a passage that you can talk about in all kinds of ways with how Wolf is dealing with symbols in this story and in in all kinds of stuff. I mean, we talked about that in the Christmas episode a while back, but about how the idea that there's a symbolic or spiritual, in this case, meaning to something and a very straightforward mechanical reason, you know, one doesn't trump the other. It's not mm-hmm. like if there is a mechanical reason, then therefore it's not spiritual. It's not the idea that magic has to break the rules of science that in, in fact they can work and be the same thing. They're just different ways of looking exactly. at the same thing. Or to put it more directly, that the rising of the cathedral could be a symbol of something. And in being a symbol of something, it becomes that thing itself. The thing is the symbol, yeah. but the symbol is the thing. Yeah. So there the the sort of the meaning of it is not in the fact that it's a miracle or that it's magical, the meaning is something else. The spiritual meaning is mm-hmm. is not tied to just whether or not it follows sort of natural laws or something. So it's a different way of, I think, thinking about what something quote unquote supernatural would be. And it's, it's a way that I don't think you could necessarily call materialist, but it's not, in this, it's, it's a way of making materialism more than sort of base I don't know, Mm -hmm. base reductivism or something like that. But that comes up over and over again, uh, I think. And I also think it has a ton to do with why Wolf mixes up science fiction and fantasy in these ways. Mm -hmm. In in New Sun in particular, that the whole point is sort of getting you to see how things can be science fiction. Or think of it this way. You start the book off and it seems like a cool fantasy. And then you realize, oh, no, it's science fiction. And that makes you assume, okay, everything's going to have a very rational explanation. But then all these sort of miraculous, wonderful, Mm -hmm. otherworldly things happen. But it doesn't mean then that it's necessarily breaking the rules. It can be both science fiction and fantasy. And then you have to figure out, well, what's the, what is the meaning of that? And that's, it's all there in this one little such a cool little passage. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's really seriously a big thing that, that Wolf's dealing with. And even all the big questions about the story, about going all the way to the the whole overall sort of plot of the story is, are the Hyradules 
manipulating the world, in which case they're just like false gods. But then if they're also doing the work of the increate, then even if they don't intend to be holy in some way, they are being holy. I mean, yeah. that whole question of how you determine that level of truth is is all wrapped up right here in this one little anecdote. That's really cool. And who's to say the Herodules aren't being manipulated themselves? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's you kind of you you get that sort of question of how far down the rabbit hole does that go or you know the whole thing about like you know it's turtles all the way down yeah or father aniri's uh presence chamber where we see an infinite line of dominas yeah. extending into yeah. and something else on the subject of agia she knew a lot about the pelerines leading some people to theorize that she's a runaway pelerine Jalinta, who seems to have grown up in Nessus, doesn't really know anything about them at all. And depending on what you believe, Owen might be completely unfamiliar with them. I don't believe that, but Jalinta is enough of an example. Well, out the northern wall of Nessus, people are very familiar with them. This woman knows that the cathedral mm-hmm. is not the cathedral of the Pelerines, it's the cathedral of the Claw. She knows what is housed there, her grant or at least the name. Her grandson-in-law had visited the cathedral a dozen times at least. So Agia coming from the north could explain her deep knowledge of the Pelerines and their religion. And that's the end of their conversation. Also, the whole time they've been talking, a guy, like I said, has been beating on a drum. At one point, Severian pauses so that he doesn't have to talk over it. Severian notes the man's chant as he drums. It reminds him of a chant he heard Dr. Talos use, but, quote, more hoarsely delivered and bereft of the doctor's malicious intelligence. So two things, Craig, in this sentence that catch my attention. So Varian refers to Talos's malicious intelligence. Mm-hmm. I suppose he's qualifying his intelligence as malicious after the fact when he knows so much more about him. I don't really know. I don't know. Yeah, I wondered about that. Like at this point in the the story, I feel like Severian, because of the whole Fox thing, like he's more skeptical of Talus than he is Baldanders. But I feel mm-hmm. like once you get to the end of it, that's when Severian maybe turns. And that's why I'm I'm really looking forward to the end of Sword when we can talk about what we think of Talus mm-hmm. at the end uh, and does Severian's idea change ideas change. So yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Which I, I think the easy read, the Occam's razor read, is that it's just so far, think of it as the Talus that Severian just doesn't trust because of the whole Fox thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is not the Talus who's brought him the coin, maybe at the end, who's let him know that something else is going on. Well, the second but. thing is that Severian is connecting this man to Talos at all. It makes me wonder what parallel Severian might see between Talos and this carnival barker. Uh, I don't know. Could it be just that both are in discourse with time travelers? Yeah, or they're both performers. They're both, mm-hmm. you know, there's a show and they're trying to get you interested in something. And I think Severian feels pretty sure that this guy, this barker is trying to get you to come see something that's pretty cheap and fake. Yeah. And I like that because then maybe that means that he kind of thinks at this point, at least, that he doesn't have a whole lot of <laughs> respect for <laughs> Talos's play, maybe. Yeah. Um, and so maybe he thinks it's all just nonsense at this point. And maybe the reason, yeah, I 
it's hard to say, you know, but, but I kind of like that idea that right now he's got a pretty low opinion of Talos and thinks that, yeah, Talos was just sort of putting on a show of nonsense. And maybe by the time he decides to actually write out and the whole play, then he's got a different idea. Um, uh, he's got a different feeling about mm. what Talos maybe was trying to say. Well, he could be saying after the fact that both were cheap carnival barkers for a secret that was kind of big. Yeah. More than they realized maybe even. Yeah. They seem just like Barkers, but actually what they ended up showing, whether or not they knew it, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this guy, certainly, I don't think this guy necessarily believes that the green man is maybe what he is. He probably you know, thinks he's the thing doesn't. from the jungles or something. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. So Because even when he says we're going to get to it in a second, but he's like, oh yeah, he's telling me I need to hurry up and get you out of here by yeah. telling you your fortune. You right. Know, that's more like, yeah, move him along. That's not like, okay, now do your really serious, important, intimate thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> And before we go on, let's consider what the old tea shop woman said. They caught a green man. Do you know that? Got him right over there where you can see the tent. Green men know everything, people say, if you can but make them talk. This suggests that the green man we're going to meet now is not a one-off. Right. It's not so rare that no one has ever heard of them being caught before. And I got to admit, until I reread the chapter this time, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. I had forgotten that they say that. And so I was caught off guard because I was like, oh, I, this changes some things <laughs> that maybe I thought. And also the, when I read it now, we'll talk about it, but the way the green man talks about time travel, it seems a little more common to him. You know, he's just like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'm yeah. from your future. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not like the, the crazy, insane person who's like, you know, somehow I have ended up in your time or whatever. Right. He's like, oh, no, I, I'm from the future. So the other possibility is maybe this area and moment in time is some kind of transit area for time travelers from the future. I don't, yeah. know. I don't know. And I don't know either. Like, I don't know. I mean, and of course, this is Wolf saying this, so it's hard to know, too, like how much of what she's saying is just sort of like folklore that's been talked about. And maybe it just so happens that this guy actually can tell a bit of the future because of whatever traveling back and forth means. You know, we don't we don't really know. We're never actually told. Um, But the way that he has her tell it, say these things suggests some things, but whether or not we can ever tell that that's actually folklore or real knowledge or some mix of both, we just don't know. Oh, so maybe there's a myth about green men and it just happens that he falls into that and fits. Could be. I mean, we just don't know. Like, like it's only told in this sort of offhand way. So there's just, we we just literally, and we never see another green man so far as I know. Yeah. Um, Certainly not directly like this. Yeah. So I don't know. I just found that fascinating this time because I was like, oh, I hadn't remembered that he put that in there. And I'm now I'm like racking my brain trying to think of other times maybe mm-hmm. Severian interacted with someone who might have been a green man. I don't know. Um, but no, I couldn't think of anything else. Yeah. Well, let's just remind ourselves how much cross time traveling th- that there is at this point in the Commonwealth. Yeah. There's Haythor. Uh, we're going to have it confirmed in a bit that he's from the distant past. There's Robert and Marie in the jungle garden, and it's unlikely they'll escape the garden into the Commonwealth, but 
the fact that a plant did do that demonstrates that it's possible that they could. There's Jonas, a sailor on some kind of faster than light or near or nearly as fast as light ship. There's the Undyne Jeterna, whose name we don't learn until the end of Earth of the New Sun, but we do learn at the end of Citadel was sent by people with knowledge of the future to save Severian in the Guile. And sending information through time is, you know, just as significant as sending people. It's essentially the same thing. It's limited or not by the same laws of thermodynamics. There's those tunnels that people began to construct before discovering interstellar travel. And Craig, I know you're skeptical that they're related to time travel, but consider this. So Varian says that before they traveled throughout the galaxy, they first began constructing those tunnels. Well, why? Because, well, I propose that they need to learn how to manipulate time in order to break the light speed barrier. And then there's also Father Aniri's mirrors. Even though Domnina did not travel to a different time, I believe that she did travel between universes. And, and Malrubius tells Severian that time travel is nothing but the ability to leave the universe. If you follow that model strictly, time travel in this book can become incomprehensible, and I don't recommend it. But Domnina is a different kind of time travel. Uh, finally, here we have the Green Man, a man from Severian's future, but not necessarily the one only future, because we have the example coming up with Master Ash that there could be others. I don't know what things are like in the rest of the world, but here in the Commonwealth, it looks like it's Grand Central Station for time travels. <laughs> The other thing, too, is that the first clear images of time travel that we get are both associated with vegetation, like yeah. the jungle hut, that there's mm -hmm. the, the, it happens in the green jungle, and then the green man. And something about the idea that time travel in the future are, is associated with vegetation, mm. I haven't quite worked it out yet, um, but that's where we definitely got to ask Mark. <laughs> about oh. the the lianas oh yeah he's gonna get really he'll green, love that <laughs> green jungles and and everything else um that that goes on with that but the but yeah the idea that the future or, and the past maybe or or something about time travel being associated so much with green and with vegetation mm -hmm. in the first part of this book is uh it's one of those things that i say is significant but i don't know why <laughs> i have great work to and also, the Earthless has a lot of discussions about the mythology of the Green Man. So I guess we should talk about that here. The Green Man is an architectural uh, entity. It's a face on the walls of buildings and churches made or of or of leaves or covered with leaves. And actually called the Green Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Like that, that figure is actually called the Green Man, just right. like, like he is here. And yeah, and what's really significant about him is his ubiquity. You'll find green men on buildings and churches across Europe and the Middle East. And supposedly the green man has something to do with rebirth or the cycle of new growth every spring. He's been associated with Frere and Osiris, but not in any way that I can connect to this chapter. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, especially sort of new new wave pagan type stuff they love to make a ton out of the green man of being like the the pre even like a pre-greek and roman type of uh polytheism kind of deity that's just mm -hmm. a a sort of an initial almost like gaia type god or, or god of 
kind of a God of rebirth and, and a God of sort of the eternal nature or something like that. Something about the natural world, uh, some kind of pantheistic spirit or something like that. I, I have no idea if that's true, but that's one thing. Like if you just look up green man on the internet, you're going to get a ton of, <laughs> you know, that new age book stuff yeah. talking about it. But yeah, but then in the actual mythology, then it becomes a figure all the time that is often associated with fertility with like I think one of the most common things you'll see about why it's associated with architecture is that it's supposed to be like over time it got associated with just prosperity um and sort of like continuing on and you know longevity and things right. like that and so that's one reason why it shows up in a lot of architecture it's supposed to mean we hope this building will last a long time mm. <laughs> you know just like just like the trees and the leaves always come back hopefully this thing will last year after year after year after year um but as far as the actual gods go and, and mythological meaning it's hard to say like exactly what the green man is um i don't think there's any idea that the green man was a figure from the future <laughs> i don't <laughs> think that's something that you find that seems to be there. something it's new always, yeah yeah far from the past so that's where if this is supposed to be an allusion to the green man that's where it gets harder to think because like you said like what would the point of that be and yeah that's where i don't I have trouble figuring out why that sort of symbol of old, old paganism would be super important here uh, yeah. because it seems like that's not really what the green man is, is doing in the book. Yeah. So that's one, that green man is one mythological possible connection here. Um, we also have Osiris. Right? Who is green. Who is green. Yes. Um, and is also, you know, in Egyptian mythology is a symbol of, birth and renewal um, about sort of, I think the big idea there is often that the idea of the Nile sort of uh, always maybe receding, but then always coming back, it's always going to bring uh, life and, and fertility back uh, to the Valley. And that we're getting more into something that may be a little bit closer when we actually think about cycles. Um, like that's one thing that I think Osiris as the sort of death and rebirth cycle as an image of that, that maybe, especially given the first name of the or the name of the first chapter of Shadow of the Torture, and also what he kind of describes here as no longer having to really worry so much about death and and sort of taking that cycle of death and rebirth back into ourselves. And I mean, especially when we're going to get to it, but he talks about how you know, the pond scum inside of him dies and then feeds on itself and grows again. And that whole constant cycle of death and rebirth allows him to just keep living. Right. Um, and, and it's sort of like, there's a, there is death and rebirth still, and there's still death, but it serves a higher purpose, which is him. So it's like the pond scum is dying instead of, you know, animals to feed me or something like that. So it's, you still have death and rebirth, but it's a, almost like a kinder <laughs> way of doing it. Maybe. But yeah, so there, if I have, I mean, Osiris being green skinned and then having that cycle of rebirth, I feel like maybe if Wolf is alluding to some actual mythological figure here, he's borrowing more from Osiris than the older green man. Maybe. That's at least where I think. Yeah. Well, there is also another green man in the Quran, Al-Qadir. Uh, I'm butchering that pronunciation, I'm sure. It's K-H-I-D-R. Not mentioned by name, but he's known from other literary instances and, and Muslim scholars identify him in this text. In the passage, Al-Qadir meets with Moses 
And he does all these random acts of kindness and brutality and Moses demands and an answer. And Alkadir explains his inscrutable ways. And this has some overlap for Severian and the arc of the story. Also, you know, I've been known to associate Alkadir with Silk and Patira Quetzal in the Book of the Long Sun, but you know, I can't really find direct meaningful connection to this green man either in the not in the Quran or, you know, once again, any other green men of legend and mythology. So one other green man I feel like we have to mention, and I don't think it's here, but there are some interesting possible connections, is from the medieval oh. poem of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Right, sure. And it, it's a fun story where Green Knight, who's just a knight, who's all in green and even himself is green, comes to the round table on Christmas significantly. Mm-hmm. And or maybe significantly, I don't know, <laughs> but, but sets a challenge. Trust me, Hamlet's Mill thinks it's significant. <laughs> yeah, they go on. Ah, well, very good. This. Yeah. Very good. Um, basically the story of the, it's in the story's in two parts. The first one, the knight comes in and challenges somebody. And basically the challenge is going to be that uh, you can give me a blow and then I'll return the blow. Uh, like you can hit me and then I'll hit you back and, and we'll see who's braver. And so they chop off his head and he picks it up. And he's like, all right, I'm my see, turn to see you back. in a year. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I'll be back in a year. And so Gawain has to go through all this and he worries and he travels for a long time. And then the second part of the story is he goes to a, a manor house where he's supposed to. Uh, and I forget now I shoot. I need it's been so long since I've actually read the text. I forget if he knows that this is where he's going to meet the guy, the, the Green Knight again or or not, but basically it's a different set of kind of a different story where he's got another challenge now where he's going to spend three days here. And Lord of the manor says, I'm going to go hunting every day. You stay here. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we'll give each other what we got. And so he goes off and he hunts right and gives him a deer. But all this time, the Bertilak, the Lord's wife is trying to seduce Gawain. And so it's (laughs) like, you know, he gives him a kiss. And so the guy has to gives him a kiss back. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and uh it's 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 kind of funny and whatnot but but in the end you know he knows that you know he can't do anything with this woman he's trying not to give in and of course Gawain being the the master of piety that he is never never quite does but anyway in the end he wins Gawain wins and he's gonna have to marry the woman um and they there's a, a fun little twist where it turns out that she is beautiful uh, at night and, or he, and ugly during the day <laughs> and she's got a curse put on her and she gives him a choice. She's like, when, w- what would you like me to be? I can either be beautiful during the day. So other people can see you and ugly at night, or I can be, you know, the opposite pretty at night for you and, and ugly for everyone else. And you don't have to be ashamed of me. And Gawain gives the right answer by saying, no, you choose what you want. Mm. And, um, so anyway, but it's not as much to do with the green night <laughs> at that point, but Point is, um, point is though the Green Knight, uh, in that case, is a kind of image of return, mm-hmm. um, rebirth, sort of death cycle. Rebirth. He mm-hmm. can, yeah, a cycle that he can get his head chopped off, and then he says he's going to come back in a year, and and um, so there is that. Don't think that's really here, well, but it could be. Well, you asked about uh, Islamic texts. Mm-hmm. Hamas Mill does associate this story with the story of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham offers him as a sacrifice. Because in 
an Islamic uh, version of the story, Abraham chops off Isaac's head and God, you know, heals it and resurrects him. Ah, interesting. That's very different too, because there Abraham actually does have to go through with it. Wow. Right. That's pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah. It's very heavy metal. Yeah. Yeah. It also changes the whole part of the story because like in the version that we have, it's like God saying, yeah, I just wanted to test your faith, but I right. never would have had you do something horrible. Oh, right. Exactly. Um, so we got four different ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I, if I have to think that any of those are connected here, Osiris seems right. Um, but I don't know that you necessarily have to see Wolf alluding to something here because what the green man actually is, is something that's so bound up with the sun imagery and mm -hmm. the idea of being able to feed directly off of the sun um, right. in some ways, being able to feed directly off the symbol of goodness rather than right. to have to, I mean, honestly, in some ways do violent things to survive. I mean, he talks exactly. about the green man's going to talk about having to, you know, all the strife that comes along with needing to survive. Right. Um, not just killing animals, but everything that goes with struggling to get food and to provide and, and all yeah. that kind of thing. And so, um, yeah. And I mean, if you're thinking about it symbolically, it's sort of a really hopeful image of literally being able to live off of God, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the source yeah. of light, like to be able to survive just off of that. It's, it's a pretty, I think one of the most hopeful images that we ever see in this book, especially up to this point, uh, when everything that Severian's shown us is so horrible and torture is no normal and the way that people are living. And then to be shown this figure who seems amazing right. <laughs> in a lot of ways, like, like what evolution could have done or technology. Right. Um, and then he's just in this world, he's, he's chained and in a dingy little tent in a tiny little town. Right. Well, so the drummer outside the tent is chanting as he drums continuously, knows everything, knows everybody, green as a gooseberry, see for yourself. So <laughs> there's a man who is, this is definitely a man who's selling to the mainstream. He's oh, yeah. totally yeah. omniscient and he has an unusual color. <laughs> so, <laughs> he says, brought from the jungles of the north, never eats akin to the bushes and the grasses. Boom, boom. The future and the remote past are one to him. Severian asks the woman if the green man would know where to find Agia. Remember, Severian does not realize that Agia is hunting him. Right. And that's also just such a weird thing. Like it, it, it's a moment where Severian is comes across as very much adolescent again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, oh, here's this, here's this miraculous thing <laughs> that that you'll never see in your mere existence again. I know. I'll go ask her if I can find someone I once had a crush on who I think yeah. <laughs> see. And he is. Right. Despite everything Just, going uh, on with Dorcas, he's totally hung up on Agia. Right? Yeah. 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 It's such a a strange moment. I feel like if you think about, I mean, the way Wolf tells it, you can see like, oh yeah, he saw Asia and he was still kind of fascinated with her and he's, he's wants to go find out. But from a different perspective, it's just so random in some ways <laughs> that, yeah, I can see why he'd be curious about this, but to be that obsessed mm -hmm. right at that moment, to me just really makes Severian seem very, very young and very impulsive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And the old woman, you know, this is the first time that Severian has actually told her Agia's name. And she says, oh, well, now, now I know your her name and I can, you know, I'll know who to call when I see her. So she says, you know, you've got money. Why not ask him? The cost is one eos, a copper coin in value between a brass or a chalk and a silver asimi. So one eos to uh, see him and then two to talk to him and three to be alone with him. And Severian asks how long he gets to be alone with him. And the drummer smiles and says, you know, as long as you want. Apparently it's the green man's job to tell people something to make them leave quickly. Or, or maybe he's just the sort of guy to answer that way. Severian expected the inside of the tent to smell bad, like there was some kind of animal there. But it actually smells like wet hay. All right. Now this guy. He's hairless and the color of light jade. He's chained in the center of the tent in a, quote, dust-spangled shaft of sunlight. And of course, the man feeds only, uh, you know, via, well, I'm going to say photosynthesis right now, but he needs that light. But here's the point. If you believe that every family member of Severian has a reference to this little beam of light being on him, this guy would have to be Severian's great, 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 great mm -hmm. grandson or something. <laughs> Yeah, just to remind everybody, we talked about that with Asia and Angelus in the cell, how there's just yeah. a tiny little light. beam of light coming through. And the guy wears a skirt of leaves. That's his only clothes. And there's a clay pot of clear water for him to drink. It's very expects the guy to be painted or dyed. And as the green man checks Severian out, he can see that even the whites of the guy's eyes are greenish. And Severian thinks that if he were really a vegetable, that he ought to have grass for hair. He, <laughs> he described his voice as being womanish, except for its depth. And there's also an aspect of despair in his face. And Severian notes that his face is much sadder, even than his friend Jonas's, which is a subtle reference to the fact that both are a different kind of time traveler. Yeah. Or possibly even just being, yeah, a time traveler. And, and I think also maybe a reference to being out of your own time. And being an unhappy time traveler, right? Being stuck, yeah. right? Yeah. Take it back. Mm -hmm. yep. Anyway, both parties find the other remarkable. Severian says, you are a vegetable then, a speaking plant? And, he sa and the green man says, you are no country man. And Severian says, I left Nessus a few days ago. And the green man says, with some education. Severian considers his instructions by Palamon, Malrubius, and his time with Thecla, and he doesn't think about Gerlos. In the end, he says, I can read and write. The Green Man explains that it is implausible that he's a talking vegetable, because even if a plant were to evolve sentience, it is infinitesimally unlikely that it would happen to take a human form. But Severian has a response. Well, that's true for stones too, and yet we have statues. Aha! This really makes the green man smile. Touche, mm -hmm. Severian. Yeah, it's. I also like it because it's kind of like, well, we can turn stones into symbols, but there's a difference between a living symbol and a sort of static symbol. Yeah. And I don't know if that's intentionally what's going on here, but I do like the idea of turning something yeah. into or creating something and one is living and one is just yeah. sort of inert. 
Well, he's basically saying, well, you could still be a plant just as some, you know, mad scientist has formed you to look like a human and right. given you sentience. Mm. Yeah. The uh, green man says, you have no scientific training, but you're better taught than you realize, which is to say, you know, you don't have the information, but you seem to have been taught how to reason. Yeah. And Severian says, on the contrary, all my training has been scientific, although it had nothing to do with these fantastic speculations. Severian's <laughs> training is in torture, it has made him part of the culture's technocratic class, I guess. Yeah. And then he finally asks, what are you? Which is exactly the question that Agalus asked Severian when he first met him. And the green man says, I'm a great seer. I'm a great liar, just like every man whose foot is in a trap. Severian offers to try to help him if he'll explain what he is. And suddenly there's a change in the green man's demeanor. He looked at me, and it was as if some tall herb had opened eyes and shown a human face. And, you know, the first time I read this, I thought Severian was saying that the green man looked at him, and it was like a tall herb opened its eyes and revealed a human face. But the green man says, I believe you. Why is it that you, of all the hundreds who come to this tent, know pity? So Severian gives a true torturer's answer, that he knows nothing of pity, but he's been trained to respect justice. Also, and maybe we can talk for why this is pertinent. He says, also, I am well acquainted with the Alcalde of this village. Perhaps he's saying that the Alcalde, the mayor of this town, does not have a respect for justice, or maybe mm. that he's saying he he, since he knows the Alcalde, he can help him. Yeah. And I think maybe it's both of those. Mm. I also like the distinction between pity and justice. That the idea, it seems like before, like in Shadow, when Severian's at the end talking about how he doesn't get to decide justice, he just carries out orders. Justice seems in some ways like a better thing, a, a more moral thing. Here, though, justice seems cold and pity is the warm thing. Yeah. Um, and it's just an interesting distinction that pity wasn't even something that was on Severian's mind. It seems like in uh, the first, uh, the first section, like even when he's talking about, you know, preparing the client for something, he's just like getting Agilus ready. And he's like, maybe I'll make it a little easier for you, but there's no sense of any kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Pity. Whereas here, what we're going to see is, is yeah. Severian directly does take pity on him. And well, yes, but he says, as Severian puts it, maybe it is pity and he's just dressing it up as something else. But pity is a type of charity, whereas justice is an obligation. Yeah, it could be. And I guess it depends kind of on how you read that line. Like, because as I read it, it seems like, although, yeah, maybe not. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe Severian's saying it there where he feels like pity is less than justice. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah. I was thinking maybe he was saying, you know, pity, pity might be a better thing. Right. Um, well, so he follows yeah, it up with a green man is still a man. And if he's a slave, his master must show how he came to that state and how he himself came into possession of him. So he's saying, you know, you can't just abduct people and make them slaves. Yeah. And that's cool. Cause the, the green man says like the green man is wise that you know, pity. And yeah, maybe Severian is saying, well, actually, you know, it's not just, yeah, it's not just pity, but it's something higher that moves mm -hmm. me to this. Yeah, I don't know. I got to think about this passage now a little bit. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, okay. So the green man explains against his better judgment that he's a free man. And it appears from 
from this statement, the, the, this term, the use of the term, I am a free man, his society might have slavery, but he could mm-hmm. just be adopting could the local be. terminology. Yeah, but the, the way he describes it, it does seem like there are norms about <laughs> slavery that are followed, yeah. He explains that he comes from Severian's own future to explore his age. His green skin is caused by a kind of algae. It's been genetically altered to live in his blood. So the green man society only requires sunlight to live. There are no famines or farming. The Severian also says that the idea that you've come from the future is impossible. Yes. Um, just sort of dismisses out of hand the idea mm-hmm. of time travel here is impossible, which makes me assume that Severian still thinks that maybe what happened in the jungle hut was an illusion or Mm -hmm. was not actual travel, even though, even with all the ways that he talks about father Neri's mirrors and and thinking about that here, he just quickly dismisses the idea of this kind of travel, Um, which is then interesting because as the conversation goes on, he kind of starts to, maybe believe, but it's a question for me here of does this encounter with the green man here actually make Severian at some level start to believe that time travel is something really possible? Because by the time he gets to master Ash later on, he's more asking about, well, how does this work <laughs> rather yeah. than, than, you know, being awed by the the fact that, that it does happen. So, but yeah. Um, and it's sort of, to me, it's one of those, moments where Wolf does something where, yeah, the one thing to me that would seem like most important is if Severian does start to believe this guy just a little bit, instead of asking him all kinds of questions about, well, how did you get here? How does this happen? What does it mean that we can travel in the future? Can I know the future? Instead, he gets back to Asia, right? Right. He always (laughs) goes away from what would seem like the biggest, most important question to something else. Now, one thing, Craig, there is a broad assumption, I think, that the green man is living by photosynthesis. But I think it's clear here that that is not the case. He says, in us, the tiny plants live and die and our bodies feed from them and they're dead and require no other nourishment. So they have bioengineered a supernutritious algae that lives mm-hmm. in the blood, probably in the capillaries at the surface of their skin. Their bodies feed on the algae itself. I remember an earthless discussion about the impracticality of an animal living on photosynthesis. It was pointed out that even a tree only produces enough energy a day to power a light bulb, but their bodies are actually living on hydrocarbon fuel, just like all animals. And it also is, I mean, he specifically said, no, I'm not a vegetable, right? (laughs) So it's, you know, he doesn't have vegetable forms of nutrition that, yeah, they're, they're, just they're vegetarians. They're just mm-hmm. eating the vegetables inside of them. That's right. But the problem here is that he doesn't have enough sun in Severian's time for him to survive. In mm-hmm. where the green man is from, the sun is very bright. And that remark affects Severian in the same way that a traveler from the future would have on a Christian if he said, and then when Jesus returned, because yep. Severian says that simple remark thrilled me in a way that nothing had since I first glimpsed the unroofed chapel of the broken court of our citadel. So Severian is, you know, quite the believer in the new son, right? Seems like at this point, yeah, that 
or, or another way to see it is even if he never really had much thought about that, it's like the idea that the legends that he'd heard were true yeah. filled him with more hope and it kind of surprised him even right. that he was so thrilled by something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's funny because it's almost like saying, <laughs> I don't know. And I think it's because we just came through Christmas and I'm thinking about those, but it also sounds almost like he's saying, I can't live on the low level of Christmas spirit in this world. <laughs> like, especially if you think about the sun being like God, right. you know, he's like, there's just so little faith in this world yeah. for me to survive. <laughs> Elf of the new sun. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Elf of the, I like that. And that mention of the unroofed chapel on the broken court of their citadel, that this is something I've always assumed that the unroofed chapel was that way because it was a thousand years old and it was dilapidated. Mm. But maybe all chapels in the Commonwealth are unroofed. Respect uh, for the coming of the especially new sun. sun. Yeah. That's kind of cool. So Severian says, oh, then the new sun comes as prophesied and there is indeed a second life for earth if what you say is the truth. And at this, the green man throws back his head and laughs. To Severian, the green man's laughter is flat out inhuman. He says, much later, I was to hear the sound of the Alzabo makes as it ranges in the snow-swept tablelands of the high country. Its laughter is horrible, but the green man's was more terrible. This is the second reference, Greg, to the Alzabo. And I suppose it's time for us to address the background of the word. Um, in Castle of Days, Wolf gives a definition of Alzabo. He says, an animal that assumes the personality of its prey that is devoured, it cries at doors with the voice of a dead child, then attacks the grieving parent who opens the door. This Arab legend is based on the hyena. So let's start with etymology. The word Alzabo appears to be an Arabic word for the hyena. Um, lexicon Earthus says the word comes from the Arabic word Aljib, which I'm taking a best shot at uh, pronouncing, but I've done badly. But it means wolf. And that's very appealing. There might well be a connection. But the Hebrew Aramean word for hyena is sabo or tisabo. The al in alzabo is an article like the word the. So I think there is a one-to-one -one correlation with the word alzabo and the hyena. And in T.H. White's Bestiaries, A Book of Beasts, a really terrific book, his translation of the 12th century Latin bestiary in the footnotes, the word Alzabo is listed as one of the many alternate names for the Yena, uh, which, of course, is a variously accurate and inaccurate description of the hyena. And might have been <laughs> like, like that, Iena, yeah. I know. Other terms listed are Zabo, Akabo, Asa, Belbus, Zile, or Sile. Gulo, yes, like ghoul, crote, crota, lacrocuta, lucrota, corocata, rosamaca, and the lupus vespertinus, that is the evening wolf. <laughs> I like that one, actually. <laughs> the hyena and its legendary forms in ancient literature are, are variously believed to be a crossbreed of dogs and cats lions and wolves, and lions 
and hyenas, which is an interesting one. So I discussed uh, Lexicon Earth's intrigue with Michael, and he put me onto an extensive discussion of the word Alzabo on the Earth list. And in that discussion, some posters noted that in Jorge Borges's uh, the Book of Imaginary Beings. In some translations, the creature Crocata is instead named Alzabo. And I was not able mm. to catch up that particular discussion in the Earth list. So maybe it's another memory artifact from the great lost genie list. I mean, you don't have to find a smoking gun to be certain Wolf was working closely from the Book of Imaginary Beings. Uh, Michael wants yeah. a list of earthless creatures from the Book of the New Sun that are in that book. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. There are even some that he left out in that list, like the fish in the entry animals that live in the mirror. For the crocata or alzabo, depending on your translation, Borges uses uh, Tessius as a guide. I prefer the name Catesius the Canidian, who was also a major source for Pliny the Elder in his natural history. And Catesius says something that surely caught Wolf's eye. He says, in Ethiopia, there is an animal called the crocata, or commonly uh, Kynalycus, the dog wolf. It has amazing strength. It's said to imitate the human voice, to call men by name at night, and to devour those who approach it. Dog wolf. And Elian, hmm. second century book on animals, actually gets a little closer. It conceals itself in the thickets and then listens to woodcutters calling one another by name and even to anything they say. And then it imitates their voices and speaks, though this story may be fabulous, with the voice that sounds human at any rate, calling out the name which it has heard. And the man who has been called approaches. The animal withdraws and calls again. And the man follows the voice all the more. But when it has drawn him away from his fellow workers and has gotten him alone, it seizes him and kills him and makes a meal of him after luring him on with his call. So, yeah, it's yeah. easy to see how these little bits can be mixed together. To oh, yeah. yeah. And that would be enough for me, except that Wolf's definition in Castle of the Otter is so specific. He says, an animal that assumes the personality of its prey, it has already devoured, it cries at doors with the voice of a dead child, then attacks the grieving parent who opens the door, this Arab legend is based on the hyena. None of these citations actually fit Wolf's definition. Taking the identity of the prey after eating it, speaking with the voice of a child it has eaten to capture the parent, an Arab legend. Catesius and Pliny are Greek and Roman, and most of the sources they were probably working with are Persian. The name Wolf chose is Arabic, and he implies he's working from an Arabic legend. There's a similar vibe between Wolf's Alzabo and the Arabic ghoul or Sile, but I haven't been able to find the one-to-one -one connection. It wouldn't be a problem so much if he kind of said, oh no, this is a certain Arabic legend, right? Right. Like if he was just like, oh, it's kind of loosely based on something. You right. Know, and I changed it to fit my own thing. But when he says that, yeah, it makes you wonder, oh, did he, or did he have some one particular book that told the story in a certain way? Mm -hmm. I don't know. This gets back to my my thing I say all the time of how much I wish we had like a list <laughs> of the actual books that Wolf had and that he checked out in his library right. or whatever. Yeah. Nice, but, but yeah, I, so yeah, I don't know. And I, I mean, in some cases, this is one of those places where I'm, if somebody could find an, a direct original source, that'd be cool. 
Mm-hmm. But it seems like there's enough there that we know that all these things are out there. And what Wolf did was make it fit the story that he wanted to tell. Right. But I do like that the first time that word comes out is when he laughs here. That, right. that gets right to the hyena bit. Right? Exactly. Like it's yeah. not just the voice. It's the hyena side. And it troubles Severian so much because it's it's making it seem like it's just, I just love this so much. It fits so perfectly because I think probably what's going on is the green man hears Severian say this. And to him, it sounds like superstitious kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe the green man, he's talked about how we've engineered ourselves to do this. So he's talking about, you know, he's come from, I would assume a more scientific future and sort of legends of the new sun, you know, aren't the reason that he would give for things like that. And so he hears this and he's like, ha ha ha, you don't know the real thing. Right. Um, but to Severian, that laughter makes it sound like it's mocking him. And it's almost like, you know, oh, the thing that is so deeply important to me and that has just moved me so much, you know, you're saying is empty. And it's so it's it's almost like, I don't know, like a hyena laughing at him, sort of, yeah. you know, sending his emptiness back to him and with fake laughter or something. I don't know, but it's just such a cool, cool reason to bring up the Alzabo and to have the hyena overtones right at that point in, in that moment. Yeah. And for Severian, it's an inhuman laugh. Yeah. And it makes Severian convinced that whatever he is, he can't be human because a human would never make that horrible sound as laughter. And this is also the passage in this chapter that really makes me question a lot of the things that I think uh, in the earth list and in other discussions get said about the green man, that everything is so far, the green man has seemed, like I said, very hopeful, like this mm-hmm. idea that you can survive without this. But then here's this moment where when Severian brings in a religious or spiritual or something, even if just mythological approach to what's going on here, the green man totally undercuts it. And right. it's just like, ha, 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 you naive, sad little creature. Yeah, you know, if, cave, if that's to him, he's a caveman, right? A caveman, he's a yeah. Neanderthal. Yeah. And it's something that becomes this like huge question then of, okay, well, if the green man is an image of a really hopeful future, um, but then he laughs at all of these symbols that are sort of giving Severian and other people hope in this world, it's successful future, but is it is it good? <laughs> you know, I mean, at least that's, that's kind of a question that I feel like I come away from this chapter this time reading it. And, and this part really bothered me because I think honestly, a lot of the time before I've always been like, Oh no, the green man's pretty, I've always felt in a lot of ways, the green man's one of the few pretty unambiguous, good things in new sun. Mm. And after this laughter, I wonder, like, I really, it, it sort of, it, it bugs me a bit now <laughs> that this happens because I had forgotten this part. And it really does seem to me at least to make the green man, unless it's the idea that the green man has moved on past needing that kind of thing. Like maybe they've, I don't know, maybe there's some higher thing that they've, they've integrated and absorbed things so much that they don't necessarily need the spiritual because they just live it out in their day to day. I don't know. Well, maybe there is, Um, well, maybe there is spiritual, but he still sees Severian's, you know, religious, you know, caveman uh, beliefs as alien and he has has his own biases about Severian. But it just, it just struck me this time. Like it just really, I don't know why it really shook me up this time, but I was, I was really expecting to just come in here and talk all about sort of what the green man would mean for the future (laughs) and how it maybe solves certain problems about 
you know, how killing loads of people is sort of a <laughs> lets you, I don't know, start with some new growth or something like right. that. But I don't know. This laughter bugs me this time. Yeah. Well, I think it's not so much the laughter that bothers me. It's that he has no memory of the new sun coming. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Yeah. And that's the, that's key to the laughter because he knows nothing about what he's talking about. But he has come through all this time. So he knows that the sun is different. He knows something has happened to make it the way it is in his sun. And he said he's come to study them, right? Right, right, yeah. right. But he has a, yeah, but, he, you know, even now we know that scientists sometimes have a low opinion of the things that they study or are a non-opinion. Yep. Yeah. So that's not necessarily true, but he's he's not just a citizen of a future civilization. He's a time traveler. So let's mm-hmm. say his time traveling technology does not allow him to go to the time during or just after the coming of the new sun. You know, like maybe this is a very key moment and he's got to, he can only go to this point. So he doesn't know. He know he knows that something happened. He must know something happened. Uh, he knows that the religion of the new sun is not total garbage, right? Should anyway. Well, so, but maybe he's one of the first time travelers of his race. He doesn't know a lot about this ancient prehistoric time yet. So anyway, that's just the fact that he doesn't know that he is a time traveler from the future and he's kind of contemptuous of the idea of the coming of the new sun. Or maybe he thinks that because he doesn't know it, he, he has these other ideas about what he's talking about. He doesn't think of it as a real new sun that's come. Right. But anyway, when he laughs, Severian says, you are not human. And at that, the green man says, and to think I hoped in you, what a poor creature <laughs> I am. I thought I had resigned myself to dying here among a people who are no more than walking dust. But at the tiniest gleam, all my resignation fell from me. I am a true man, friend. You are not. In a few months, I will be dead. The, the green man is considering himself and Severian the way you or I, again, would look at a Neanderthal or something even more remote. We're the humans here. He's the ape man. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so Severian is still convinced that this guy is an engineered vegetable from some, you know, vegan island of Dr. Moreau. He says, I remembered his kin, how often I had seen the frozen stalks of summer flowers dashed by the wind against the sides of mausoleums in our necropolis. He says, I understand you. The warm days of sun are coming, but when they are gone, you will go with them. Go seed while you can. He's saying that when he says he's going to be dead in a few months, it's because, you know, fall's coming and he's a flower. So, but then the green man gets serious. He sobered. You do not believe me or even understand that I am a man like yourself, yet you still pity me. Perhaps you're right. And for us, a new sun has come. And because it has come, we've forgotten it. If I'm ever able to return to my own time, I will tell them there of you, Severian. If you are indeed of the future, why cannot you go forward to your home and to escape? Okay, so he can't 
because he's chained. His form of time travel requires, as we're going to see, that he move in the other three dimensions as well. And there's a shackle on his ankle. His barreline flesh was swollen about it, like when you put an iron ring around a sapling and the bark grows around it. So barreline in this case means bluish green. There you go, Craig. And the drummer pokes his head at this point into the tent and he tries to move things along. He's got more customers. So he gives the green man a look and he leaves. And that means the green man is supposed to say something to drive Severian off. If he doesn't, the guy's going to close the flap on the tent and he'll take his sunshine from him. So, you know, he has to sing for his supper. So the way he drives people off is by accurately foretelling their future. So he says, you are young now and strong, but before the world has wound itself 10 times more about the sun, you will be less strong. You shall never regain the strength that is yours now. If you breed sons, you will engender enemies against yourself. And Severian isn't impressed. That's just the future of all men. All Severian wants to know is where he's going to find Agia. And the green man's eyes roll up in the back of his head, and then he trembles a little, and he stands up with his arms and fingers outstretched and says, above ground. Above ground. (laughs) And Severian says, oh, right. I see. You're a fraud. But the green man says, no, listen, in coming here, I actually had to pass through all of your future. He saw it. I guess. And it was like a dream. And even though most of it is forgotten, he remembers parts of it. And what he told him is the truth. And we know that it is the truth, regardless of how unhelpful it is. Severian's going to go below ground and he's going to find Agia when he returns above ground. And he has some other information for the Alcalde. He says that Barnark wasn't lying either. There are armed Baudelari coming to rescue him. So Severian gets out his whetstone. He breaks it in half. That's, you know, that's the stone he used to keep the blade on his, on his sword sharp. He breaks it in half and he gives it to the green man. And it's the equivalent of giving him a file. He can use it to file through the shackle. At first, the green man doesn't understand what he's given him. But then, quote, I saw the knowledge growing in him so that he seemed to unfold in his great joy as though he were already basking in the brighter light of his own day. And that's the end. I think another thing too that the passage is doing is what light and sun can mean to someone. And again, with that symbol of it being literal and and hopeful and symbolic. And here at the end, you know, that sun that keeps him literally alive becomes like the sun of hope or something like that. That the light. Yeah. So it messes with that a bit, which is fun. Um, yeah, and maybe the part where maybe the laughter isn't quite so bad because in the end, the green man does maybe, you know, stop and pay a little more attention to Severian um, could be. Now, the one thing about knowing the future, that's where I, I get confused. Like, um, and because I don't know if he's making fun of Severian here by doing the whole like eyes roll back in his head and saying above ground, it <laughs> totally seems like what you do. It's like, tell my future. And now he's gonna, he's gonna, uh-huh. uh, but then he stops and he says, no, actually I had to pass through everything. And it's, it, I don't know. Ah, it's so hard. Like, I don't know if that's sincere or if he's just messing with him. Um, 
No, I think it's I think it's real. I think it, it looks fake and the severity. Yeah. And if so, if it is real, though, does then maybe that little trance was real and he actually can tap into something? Because, I mean, it's not like he just knew Severian, right? It's not like he was just watching Severian's right. life as he goes back through time. So how would he? I don't know. I mean, you know, we're asking mechanical. Well, he, well like, he says he's basically he is omniscient because he's seen everything. And when he tries, apparently he does have the ability to go back the way Severian reviews his memories and troll through say, a maybe, lot of things that are lost and maybe that's getting them. to why Severian has such a good memory, right? When we've talked about that before, that maybe the point is that he hasn't just time traveled, but universe traveled. And so one reason he has such a perfect memory is because they're multiple Severians or he's traveled through time already or something like that. Mm. I mean, it does fit, you know, if the green man can have such a wide ranging omniscient memory like that, then maybe Severian can too. Maybe. Yeah. So, well, the one thing we're also going to find out, right. Is that the green man decides to repay him and the green man can actually control apparently wandering through the corridors of time. Right. And keeps looking for a place where he can repay. Severian. He's basically poking around, for a place to rescue his, his moving up and down his, his timeline to see a place where yeah. he can rescue him. And maybe he gets to the guy and says, Oh wait, here's my opportunity. Oh darn. That stupid mermaid yeah. got there first. So. <laughs> yep. Yep. So really cool chapter. And uh, as far as, yeah, how the green man fits in with the actual story of the sun changing and how it, how it ties in with the future of, the people at the end of um, Earth of the New Sun, the people who are worshiping Severian and Odillo and, you know, the last four as gods, that I don't know. Like, I assume if this is the future of that timeline, that's even way in the future of that, yeah. like super far, because apparently the green man is from like a technologically, biotechnologically advanced society, right? right? Like, like where come not just and and the the society at the end of earth of the new sun still seems incredibly small and tribal right, right. yes if I'm, if I'm thinking it correctly so this would be something so far into the future right. of this world where now in my right in my opinion I, I actually mark has a different idea of it but in my opinion this guy is probably as far in severian's future as uh you know severian is to us Although he does seem to speak Severian's language, which I don't know. <laughs> well, you'd have to be a, able to do that, wouldn't you? <laughs> maybe so. And I don't know if that's just a Star Trek thing of just like, right. okay, everybody speaks English. Well, it is something, <laughs> you know, right? Like, we we never meet anyone who just flat out speaks another language in this book. Except for the Ashians. Well, the Ashians. yeah, but they still speak with even, even the same yeah. vocabulary. So, yep, yep. But yeah, so I still I still feel like in the end the green man is an image of some kind of hope, like because he lives off the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, he's but I but maybe there is maybe it's just the way that Wolf is kind of tempering everything in this in this story with uh, you know nothing is perfectly good or perfectly awful, and that even even the green man maybe they're still dealing with that problem of of getting all three of the causes together, <laughs> right? The mechanical <laughs> and, the, and the, the, maybe that's sort of an eternal problem of, of being human and still being way down the hierarchy. Right. Um, just like the, the Eagle and the angels are so far away from the increate that 
that yeah even even if they've solved all kinds of other problems they they don't necessarily have the greatest they, they don't know everything they're right not, not, well i think yeah. it's interesting to me in this very short few span of chapters that we're going to hit that severian meets jonas a kind of yep. time traveler kind of from a from a different from a diff, from the distant past maybe a, mm-hmm. you know not so far um in our future at all maybe you know and he meets a green man from his distant future who is a, who is mm-hmm. complete a humanity that's so changed that Severian wonders whether he's human then he's going to meet the eight men who yeah. are a humanity that is so diverged that Severian has it hard has a hard time believing them as human. Yeah. And he has a conversation with Jonas. Well, gosh, why, uh, why didn't we change <laughs> since these eight men changed? And, yeah. uh, you know, Jonas looks at him with kind of pity and says, uh, I think you have changed. You just don't know it. So a lot there for such a short little thing, but no, the green man, he's going to come up again in our discussions. Yeah. He's always, the green man has always been an incredibly central part of just about everything I think about this book. So yeah, I've got more and it's such a short little chapter. Yeah. 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 Amazing how much there is in this little chapter, how much exposition there is about the world. Oh yeah. And so cool that he does the same, a similar kind of thing where you're like, okay, we're in a little Ren fest and we're going to see Severian doing some torture stuff. And then chapter three, boom, here's this thing, time travel and future <laughs> right. and knowing, you know, and still all mixed up with as yet. I mean, just such a, such a cool way to tell a story. And we certainly hope y'all have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints about the green man, about the meaning of the, Rising of the Temple, about Agia, about Azabus, and um, we hope that you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, the Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that it all in the show notes. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Take care, everybody. Stay green. Well, that's not easy. <laughs>
shoot, what's it called? <laughs> I'm like, I don't have it. Up. Okay, there it is. I'm really doing, I'm looking at a mess, right? Okay. And map it on. Exactly. And I know some people tried to push like, well, anyway, I'll, I'll save this. Okay. <laughs> I'll say it because that's the whole point of what we're going to do. Yeah. So I don't even know what I was going to say. <laughs> I forgot. Now we had, I won't, I won't put this necessarily in there, but we had talked about that too. Did we talk about that last? That he might look at episode? age. I don't, was that in, was that I don't in recall. Or, I don't even recall. So in I, chapter if, two? We, if we did talk about it, then I've, I've totally missed it. I'll keep my I don't mind. think we did there, but I think in, we, I know we talk about it at some point. So Austin may be anticipating something that we had mentioned um, just because of the reality, I think, Matthew um, chapter yeah. and what we're recording. But, um, but we had wondered about that too. Well, I if think. that's true, um, I'm, I'm not sure. If we did, then we and, should probably, yeah. <laughs> if we just give him a call out when that happens. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to tell Austin. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're way ahead of you. You haven't told us anything. Yep. All right. Okay. I guess I'm ready. All right. Shall we? Yeah. Okay. I need to. Mm.